Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming here this evening. You must be devil for punishment. Well, the first two lectures in this series dealt with very broad themes. And this lecture will examine how those themes are playing out in Southeast Asia and analyze the impact of US-China competition on ASEAN, the organization's ability to cope with the resulting pressures, and some of the factors underlying the day-to-day -day clamor over disputes in the South China Sea, which has, I think, emerged as something of a proxy for the larger strategic adjustments that are playing out between the US and China across East Asia. Now, since I am going to be cutting close to the bone of our own region, I ought to make explicit what should already have been obvious to all but the most determinedly obtruse in this series. In this series, I am speaking for no one but myself. <laughs> I thought that was obvious, but I was advised that perhaps it's not. In the last lecture, I argued that the chief priorities of both the US and China are internal, and both therefore want to avoid war or serious conflict as they seek a new modus vivendi with each other. At the same time, neither will cease to pursue their interests. On a global scale, China is not, to my mind, a clearly revisionist power. But Beijing certainly wants to reclaim something of its historical centrality in East Asia. The US on the other hand, has emphasized it intends to remain an East Asian power. The strategic challenge for China is therefore how to shift the US from the very center of the East Asian strategic equation and occupy that space, but without provoking responses from the US and Japan that could jeopardize Chinese Communist Party rule. For the US, the strategic challenge is how to accommodate China while reassuring friends and allies that intends to hold its position in East Asia without stumbling into conflict. Now, the South China Sea is not the only issue in US-China relations. It is perhaps not even the most important issue in their relationship. But the South China Sea is today the issue where the parameters of US-China competition and their interests are most clearly defined. Like it or not, the region will draw conclusions about American resolve and Chinese intentions from the South China Sea issue, which will also shape perceptions of ASEAN. Continental Asia shades into mainland Southeast Asia, which in turn dribbles into archipelagic Southeast Asia, the islands of which are strung across crucial sea lanes linking the Pacific and Indian Oceans. India and China have both profoundly influenced Southeast Asia, but in more recent times, the latter more than the former. The notion of China as a nation state with defined borders is relatively new. Throughout its long history, China has meant different things at different times. What is now Yunnan in Southwest China was perhaps only firmly considered Chinese in the late Qing Dynasty. More often than not, power and control ebbed and flowed without consideration for what are now national boundaries. China's border with Myanmar was not definitively demarcated until 1960. 
China's land borders with Laos and Vietnam not until 1991 and 1999, respectively. And the land tri between Laos, China and Vietnam not until 2006. Borderlands and strategic sea routes are always contested. U.S.-China competition is only the most recent such manifestation. The interests of major powers always intersect, have always intersected in Southeast Asia, which was once dubbed the Balkans of Asia. In the 19th century, failure to manage the resulting pressures led to colonial rule. Thailand remained independent, but as much due to luck and the need for, of the colonial powers for a buffer state as it was due to Thai diplomatic adroitness. In Indochina, nationalist independent struggles became entangled in Cold War rivalries, which in Southeast Asia were far from Cold. In 1967, this historical backdrop was vivid in the strategic consciousness of the newly independent states of Southeast Asia and a major factor leading to the formation of ASEAN was the common interest of the non-communist states of Southeast Asia, all of whom faced threats from internally supported communist insurgencies in preserving maximum autonomy in the midst of major power competition. Whatever our other differences, and they were quite great at that time, we realized that if we did not hang together, we would hang separately. ASEAN is a mechanism for managing external pressures and preserving the autonomy of its members by ensuring at least a, a modicum of cohesion, order and civility in our relationships in a region where none of this is to be taken for granted. The Cold War is of course long over, but this remains ASEAN's fundamental and enduring purpose. And ASEAN's declared goal of establishing a community across the three pillars of political and security cooperation, economic integration, and social-cultural cooperation are, in a sense, as important as means towards this end, this fundamental end, as they are ends in themselves. Now, Southeast Asia is an extremely diverse region. Diversity simultaneously makes regional cooperation both very necessary and very difficult to achieve. ASEAN is, moreover, an interstate organization which must work by reconciling national interests. And the diversities of Southeast Asia are, moreover, not just of political systems or levels of economic development. Such differences could, at least in principle, converge. I'm not saying they will, but in principle they could. The key diversities of Southeast Asia, however, are visceral differences of race, of language, and of religion, which define core identities and shape the domestic politics of ASEAN member states. They inevitably color their calculations of national interests and interstate relations. And it's not easy to imagine such primordial factors ever being erased. The potential nexus between the domestic politics of ASEAN member states, intra-ASEAN relations, and the interests of external powers in ASEAN is thus a possibility that can never be discounted and must be continually managed. 
The dangers of such an excess were underscored by the 1963 to 1966 an undeclared war waged by Sukarno's Indonesia against Malaysia and Singapore. Konfrontasi was driven by Indonesian domestic politics, the dynamics of which led Sukarno to toy with a Beijing-Jakarta axis as a counter to West Western forces. This was averted by a failed communist coup in Indonesia, the bloody aftermath of which quickly took on anti-Chinese overtones. Of course, the region today presents a very different environment, thanks to, in no small part to ASEAN. But the general, the general challenge of managing diversity has not gone away, and I doubt it ever will. ASEAN must therefore and can only work by consensus. And despite the charter that came into force in 2008, in which Hong Keng Yong played a major role, still works by and large, and more large than by, informally. Any other mode of decision-making risks rupture between its members with unpredictable consequences. The basic consensus on which ASEAN rests is a consensus on always having a consensus. Even if it is only a consensus on goals that we know full well cannot be realised or can only be partially realised. Its corollary is the principle of non-affairance in the internal affairs of other members. It's better to agree only on a form of words or set aside areas where consensus cannot be reached or even to avert our eyes from the disagreeable, then disagree openly because who knows where disagreements may lead us. The downside of working by consensus, this, and this is the unavoidable price we pay for having any sort of regional mechanism, is an unfortunate tendency to privilege form over substance, which all too often morphs into self-delusion and wishful thinking. And nowhere is this clearer than in ASEAN's approach towards regional security. Since 1971, ASEAN has been formally committed to establishing a zone of peace, freedom and neutrality, or ZOPFAN, in Southeast Asia. ZOPFAN was based on the superficially attractive but entirely delusionary notion that regional security could best be secured by excluding the major powers from the affairs of Southeast Asia. Inconvenient questions such as how the major powers could be persuaded to show such forbearance and what to do if they refused were ignored. Even more curiously, Zofan enthusiasts apparently failed to notice that at least one major power, China, is geographically contiguous to Southeast Asia cannot therefore be excluded from the region, and in 1971 was still actively supporting communist insurgencies in Southeast Asia, as well as the war in Vietnam. I told you delusion is one of the downsides of consensus. Zofan sat, sat uneasily with the demands of the Cold War, which made simplistic notions of neutrality or non-alignment dangerous as Sianok's Cambodia and Suvarma Puma's Laos 
discovered at grievous cost. The Cold War instead impelled a search for balance. Not balance necessarily directed against one major power or another, but balance conceived of as a state of major power equilibrium that would enable ASEAN members to positively engage all major powers without getting embroiled in their quarrels. Neutrality or non-alignment could, could be safely pursued only within such an equilibrium. Now, conditions that facilitate equilibrium cannot be established by simply lying low and hoping for the best. The two countries I mentioned, Cambodia and Laos, tried it and failed uh, spectacularly. Uh, conditions for equi equilibrium cannot be established by simply lying low and hoping for the best. Now, an ostrich thinks it is safe, but if your head is in the ground and your rear is in the air, this is a posture that only invites trouble. <laughs> Facilitating equilibrium requires taking a positive stand on sometimes sensitive issues. This is true for formal treaty allies like Philippines and Thailand, as it is for Singapore, which was and remains formally non-aligned, but maintains close defense and security ties with the US. And prior to its withdrawal east of Suez with the UK, which maintained military bases in Singapore as part of the American global security system. So vital were these ties that Singapore's first foreign minister, the late Mr. S. Rajaratnam, almost walked out of the 1967 Bangkok meeting discussing the establishment of ASEAN before an 11th hour compromise was reached by declaring that foreign bases in Southeast Asia were temporary. Now, the ASEAN members who supported Zopfan either found some obscure satisfaction in striking virtuous postures while hitching a free ride, or had other reasons for doing so. For Singapore, the most crucial balance was not against communism or any major power, but the balance which supplemented our own national efforts to maintain deterrence in our immediate neighbourhood and keep our neighbours honest. Zofan was in line with Indonesia's preference for conditions in Southeast Asia that would facilitate regional solutions to regional problems, which is to be understood as Indonesian solutions. Indonesia seems to believe that its size entitles it to a privileged position in major power calculations. Well, to some extent, this may be true, but only to a far lesser extent than Jakarta fondly believes. The major powers are happy, however, for their own reasons, to nurture the illusion. The formation of the ASEAN Regional Forum, or ARF, in 1994 marked a significant, if ill-understood, shift of security concept away from Zotfan. The ARF has often been derided as a talk shop. The criticism is not unjustified, but also beside the point. Now, Zofan regarded the major powers as illegitimate intrusions into Southeast Asia, at best tolerated as a necessary evil, but not encouraged. And this sometimes placed Singapore, who obviously did not agree, in an awkward position. So long as Zofan, with his implicit premise that regional problems should be dealt with only by regional states, remained the only official ASEAN security concept, 
It gave our neighbours a political lever to use if they wished to pressure us for whatever reason. Now, this was manageable, but a distraction and an unnecessary irritant in, an, in already complicated bilateral relationships. But consider this. The ARF is a forum explicitly dedicated to discussions on regional security, created by the sovereign choice of all ASEAN members who have, again by their sovereign choice, invited all the major powers to discuss regional security and other issues affecting Southeast Asia. Whether anyone realized it or not, this was a shift from Zotfan. The fundamental purpose of the ARF is to entrench this shift in how regional security is conceptualized and to encourage and legitimize the interests of major powers in Southeast Asian security. After the ARF, who can now reasonably or credibly argue that the major powers have no legitimate interest in the security of Southeast Asia? It has had some effect already. In 1990, before the ARF, when Singapore concluded a memorandum of understanding with the US for very limited use of our facilities by a small logistics unit of the 7th Fleet, our neighbours reacted with an outrage worthy of nuns who have discovered a pimp in their cloister. <laughs> that the outrage was hypocritical, our neighbours too had their own quiet defence ties with the US, did not make it any less of a nuisance. But in 2005, after the ARF, when Singapore and the US signed a strategic framework agreement that was far wider in scope than the 1990 MOU, there was nary a whimper. The same is true of the Enhanced Bilateral Defence Cooperation Agreement with the US announced in 2015. The broadening of ASEAN's concept of regional security has also opened the way for the participation of major powers in ASEAN-led forums such as the East Asia Summit, as well as the ASEAN Defence Minister Plus meeting. Now, I don't want to make—I don't want to claim too much for the ARF. Clearly, there were other and perhaps more important reasons for the change of attitude, Chinese behaviour, and internal political changes in our neighbours among them. In any case, the shift towards a more realistic concept of regional security is incomplete. ASEAN had wasted an inordinate amount of time negotiating the 1995 treaty establishing a Southeast Asia nuclear weapon-free zone, or SHWANFIS. I see some members of the audience who suffered with me through that process. SHWANFIS is supposed to be a component of ZOPFAN. It came into force in 1997. Now, all nuclear weapon-free zones all nuclear weapon-free zones anywhere provide only false comfort. The security assurances they provide are useless because under any circumstance when the use of nuclear weapons becomes probable, any treaty will be just a piece of paper. These make-believe games of arms control give those inclined to play them only the sensation of being involved in grave matters of war and peace. But they are harmless so long as they are not taken too seriously and nothing vital is compromised. The Sean Fish Treaty was concluded only after difficult and protracted negotiations 
reach agreement on Article 7 of the treaty, which allows visits to and transits through Southeast Asia by foreign naval vessels and military aircraft. The understanding is that we will not ask if any are carrying nuclear weapons and will not be told if we are foolish enough to ask. <laughs> Three nuclear weapon states, the UK, France and Russia, have made acceptance of reservations a condition for their accession to Schoenfis, even though the treaty explicitly forbids reservations. This is no surprise, it was entirely predictable. If the US and China have, yet, have, has, have as yet made no reservations, it is undoubtedly because the other three nuclear weapon states have done their dirty work for them. One Russian re reservation gives Moscow the right to unilaterally determine if any ASEAN member is in breach of Sonfis. This effectively abrogates Article 7 and sets a very undesirable precedent. If ASEAN were to accept that reservation, it could one day be used to pressure us to object to the US presence and not just by Russia. Indonesia and a few other ASEAN countries are still keen to have the nuclear weapon rates signed up, seemingly believing that the accession of the nuclear weapon states, even with reservations that could undermine the regional balance, somehow demonstrates ASEAN's centrality. Was this to keep alive the essential idea behind Zofan? Well, maybe. But the penchant for privileging form and regarding but the penchant to privilege form and regard ASEAN diplomacy as a type of psychotherapy designed to promote self-esteem rather than advance interests was clearly also at play. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I've emphasized these hard truths about ASEAN because 49 years after its formation, they are not, still not sufficiently understood. I do not mean to suggest that ASEAN is useless. Far from it. There has been no war between its members. We have so far leveraged on our relationships with major powers to our advantage while avoiding being embroiled in their conflicts. And these are not insignificant achievements. They are the foundation of the region's growth and development. And none of this was to be taken for granted given the parlous state of Southeast Asia in 1967. ASEAN's strengths and its weaknesses are two sides of a single coin. Suharto's Indonesia, in contrast to Sukarno's Indonesia, accepted decision-making by consensus. And this was a crucial factor that enabled ASEAN to survive where earlier attempts at regional organization failed. Our weaknesses did not matter too much as long as the international structure was clear. There was never much doubt about how the original five non-communist ASEAN countries, joined by Brunei after 1984, never much doubt how we should position ourselves within the Cold War structure. During the Cold War, China was a de facto member of the US-led anti-Soviet US alliance and made common cause with ASEAN against the Soviet-backed Vietnamese occupation of Cambodia. In the South China Sea, ASEAN fought South Vietnam over the Paracels in 1974 
and fought a unified Vietnam in the Spratlys in 1988. But neither incident really concerned ASEAN very much. Maintaining ASEAN unity and working with China to respond to Vietnam's invasion of Cambodia, which seemed the first step in realizing Hanoi's boast that he intend to bring what he called genuine independence to all of Southeast Asia, were more immediate concerns. And even if some eyebrows were quietly raised at Chinese actions in the South China Sea and over its 1979 lesson, also uh, invasion rather, to Vietnam, differences could be set aside for another day. But once the clarity of the Cold War structure began to blur in the late 1980s, ASEAN unity loosened. Indonesia regarded itself as a privileged interlocutor with Vietnam and opened direct negotiations with Hanoi on a Cambodia settlement, barely paying lip service to the common ASEAN position. After the Cold War, ASEAN's limitations have become more salient. ASEAN's expansion to include all 10 states of Southeast Asia has made arriving at consensus more difficult. There was greater room for debate and disagreement over how to position an expanded ASEAN vis-a-vis -vis China and the US. Less incentive to reconcile national interests with regional interests. If ASEAN's resistance to the Vietnamese occupation of Cambodia was the apotheosis of ASEAN's regional security role, the unprecedented failure of the 45th ASEAN Foreign Ministers' Meeting in 2012 to issue a joint statement due to the stubborn refusal of the Cambodian chair to consider any text on the South China Sea that might in the slightest way offend Cambodia's Chinese patron was surely ASEAN's Nadia. Prime Minister Hun Sen subsequently described Cambodia's support for ASEAN as a strategic choice. Now, since the fiasco in Cambodia, ASEAN has managed to cobble together statements of principle on the South China Sea. Statements are useful, but only in a limited way. They, they represent the lowest common denominator of consensus, but do not erase substantive differences of interest, do not modify behavior, do not change facts on the ground. The South China Sea disputes place ASEAN in the midst of US-China competition. The US and China, as well as other major powers, acknowledge ASEAN centrality and certainly give the appearance of courting ASEAN. I have lost count of the number of ASEAN-China summits and other high-level meetings with China. The US have held, has held five leaders-level meetings with ASEAN, of which the Sunnylands meeting last month in February is the latest and first standalone summit. The US and China now both describe their relationship with ASEAN as strategic. The ad adjective lacks precise definition, but is clearly intended to make us feel important. Since 2013, China's so-called 2 plus 7 cooperation framework has served as an ambitious and very generous blueprint for developing relations with ASEAN. The US is more strapped for cash than China, but has done what it can to pony up as well. 
Now, before our heads are completely turned by the flowers and candy and public displays of affection, the reality of our situation will be clear if we remind ourselves that before ASEAN centrality became our term of choice, we used to talk of, we in ASEAN used to talk of ASEAN being in the driver's seat. Now, the person in the driver's seat is sometimes only the chauffeur. <laughs> we should not allow the mantra of ASEAN centrality to mesmerize us into believing that we are in full control. The US and China use ASEAN-led multilateral forums as a secondary means of engaging each other. Their most important interactions are always going to be bilateral. It is, of course, nevertheless in our interest to encourage the US and China to participate in ASEAN forums. This gives us at least a subcon of influence where we would otherwise have none. But it would be prudent not to forget that ASEAN is as much an arena as actor, and ASEAN-led forums work best only when they do not work too well. The major powers then find them occasionally useful to advance their interests, but are assured that they cannot frustrate their most vital designs. If any ASEAN process looks like becoming inconveniently effective, the major powers will not hesitate to divide ASEAN as China did in 2012. Now, the most important factor in ASEAN-China relations is the obvious disparity of size and power. Small countries destined by geography to live on the periphery of big countries are always going to experience a degree of anxiety. Big countries have a responsibility to reassure which China has only partially fulfilled. And this is, not one, this is not for want of trying or lack of instruments. Trade and investments are not just mutually beneficial commercial transactions, but also juicy diplomatic carrots that Chinese diplomats dangle before ASEAN. Aid is a diplomatic tool that China has lavishly deployed, particularly in mainland Southeast Asia. Several ASEAN countries have, been readily, have readily and happily accepted Chinese largesse, and naturally it would be foolish for any country to scorn the economic opportunities that China offers. Taken in totality, ASEAN-China relations are positive. But how a big country deals with small countries over sovereignty disputes will always cast the darkest shadows over relations because the possibility of securing sovereignty by superior force can never be discounted, and China has not shied away from doing so. I mentioned two instances in 1974 and 1988, but it would be tedious to recount every instance of China's use of force or unilateral assertions of sovereignty backed by the threat of force in the South China Sea. In 2012, China established Sansha city under Hainan province with jurisdiction over the disputed Paracels and Spratly Islands, as well as Macclesfield Bank. The following year, it promulgated the Hainan Fishing Regulations, which was an assertion of domestic law over contested areas. China has since become more aggressive or assertive 
in enforcing what it considers its domestic rights in the South China Sea. And since 2013, China has begun an ambitious program of land reclamation in the South China Sea. It has constructed various kinds of structures on the new artificial islands and deployed military assets on some of them. China has argued that it was not the first to reclaim land or deploy military assets in the South China Sea. Now, this may be true, but is irrelevant. The speed and scope of China's reclamation dwarfs anything any other claimant has done, and the actions of a major power will always convey a different signature than that of small countries. China's argument that the infrastructure it has built is a common good for the benefit of all users of the South China Sea hardly seems intended to be believed. Now, China continues to engage ASEAN on a code of conduct for the South China Sea, but in a barely convincing way. Progress has been glacial, and Chinese diplomats often hold discussions on the COC hostage to ASEAN refraining from taking positions on the South China Sea that displease China. On occasion, Chinese diplomats even have perversely gone out of their way to accentuate rather than assuage anxieties. Once, not too long ago, after our Prime Minister spoke on the South China Sea at an ASEAN summit, a senior Chinese diplomat told one of my younger colleagues that silence is golden. Now, if he meant to suggest that we were not entitled a view on an important issue that affects our interests, he only undermined the credibility of China's claim to peaceful development. This was not an isolated incident, nor has Singapore been particularly singled out. China routinely attempts to pressure ASEAN members with varying degrees of success not to raise the South China Sea in ASEAN-led forums or not to support other countries who do so. The general attitude that such attempts illustrate is not confined to the South China Sea issue, but sometimes is on display even in seemingly trivial matters. Some years before I retired, one of my counterparts from uh, another ASEAN country that was then holding the ASEAN chair told me that the Chinese ambassador to his country had forced him to shift an ASEAN leader attending a summit out of a hotel that had already been allocated to that ASEAN delegation so that then Premier Wen Jiaopao could stay there. The ambassador insisted on this, although the hotel allocated to Premier Wen was of equal quality. Now, did Premier Wen know where he was staying? Would he have cared if he had known? I doubt it. But the episode really left a deep impression on my counterpart and no doubt on the ASEAN delegation that was forced to move as well. I could go on recounting similar stories. Every ASEAN diplomat who has dealt with China has a fund of such anecdotes. <laughs> but I think I have said enough to make the point. Chinese diplomats often profess bewilderment that China's generosity towards ASEAN, and it has been generous, has not evoked gratitude or assuaged mistrust and pretend to ascribe this to malignant external influences. Their behavior is, no. Now, I don't think Chinese diplomats are more inept or more disingenuous than diplomats of other countries, including our own. 
Their behaviour is, I think, better understood as illustrating the passive-aggressive style and the poisoning of false dilemmas to force acceptance of China's inherent superiority as the natural normative order of East Asian international relations, or at least Southeast Asian international relations, because I doubt Japan will ever accept this. The, the passive-aggressive style and the poisoning of false dilemmas as a tactic that I described as characteristic of Chinese diplomacy in my last lecture. Chinese diplomacy constantly hammers home the idea that if bilateral ties or ASEAN-China relations suffer because ASEAN stubbornly insists on speaking up on the South China Sea, even when our mouths are stuffed with delicious Chinese cake, or because the Chinese Premier has to stay in one hotel rather than another, or if some date they propose for a meeting cannot be agreed because it is inconvenient for ASEAN, it is our fault and our fault alone. China does not merely want consideration of its interests. Every country wants that. China expects deference to its interests to be internalized by ASEAN members as a mode of thought, not just a correct calculation of ASEAN interests vis-a-vis -vis China, but correct thinking, which leads to correct behavior. Foreign policy calculations can be revised, and they are subject to continual revisions. Correct thinking is a permanent part of the subconscious. This differentiates Chinese diplomacy from the diplomacy of other major powers and represents a melding, I think, of Westphalian diplomatic practice with ancient Chinese statecraft. The very triviality of the behavior, hotels for example, uh, China sometimes tries to impose, underscores the cast of mind it seeks to embed in ASEAN through an almost Pavlovian process of conditioning. Now, it doesn't always work. It can be counterproductive, but it works often enough and well enough with at least some ASEAN members for China to persist. Edward Ludwig has written of what he termed China's great power autism. This is probably true, but not peculiar to China. All great powers are to some degree autistic where their interests are concerned. But this is an inadequate explanation if autism implies lack of awareness. China is certainly aware of the cost of its actions. Significantly, the first of the tools in the 2 plus 7 framework that I mentioned earlier, the framework that, ASEAN, that China set up for ASEAN-China relations is, and I quote, deepening strategic mutual trust, end quote, now which acknowledges the existence of a trust deficit. President Xi Jinping himself has emphasized the need to increase mutual trust with Southeast Asia, among other occasions at this university last year. This again suggests that he knows that the present level of trust is inadequate. ASEAN has begun to push back against China's assertiveness. Some ASEAN claimants, including Vietnam, have moved closer to the US and Japan to balance China. At its last, at its last summit with ASEAN, two out of three of China's proposals, the cookies that China routinely doles out at such occasions, failed to gain acceptance and one was accepted only after delay. 
Indonesia, a non-claimant state, has expressed concern over the impact of Chinese, China's claims on its EEZ in the Natunas and signaled its intention to deploy some of its most advanced military assets there. But whatever their concerns, there is a limit to which an ASEAN member can tilt towards the US. No one can ignore or shun China, and Vietnam is the prime example. Quite apart from the South China Sea disputes, Vietnam has a long and troubled history with China. But one senior Vietnamese official once told me, and I'm paraphrasing him, every Vietnamese leader must be able to stand up to China and get along with China. If anyone thinks this cannot be done at the same time, he doesn't deserve to be a leader. That China and Vietnam are two of the only five remaining communist systems in the world is an additional link. The current muddle in Malaysia over whether or not Chinese vessels had really intruded into its waters, one minister said yes, another contradicted him, perhaps illustrates the multiple and contradictory forces at play in ASEAN. In any case, whatever costs in relations with ASEAN that China may have to pay for its assertiveness in the South China Sea may not be considered unbearably high by Beijing as compared to the interests at stake. What are those interests? I doubt that control over resources of any kind figures very prominently in China's calculations on the South China Sea. Resources could be shared without prejudice to claims of sovereignty, as China has itself suggested, although its own actions do not make any such agreement likely in the immediate future. I think we can dismiss, too, the possibility that China is trying to strengthen its legal case. China does not even acknowledge that many areas contested by ASEAN claimants are in dispute. In a Singapore lecture, President Xi categorically asserted, and I quote, the South China Sea Islands have been China's territory since ancient times, end of quote. Uncertainty over what China's nine dash lines signify has added to regional and international concerns. But China has said it will not recognize the decisions of the arbitral tribunal on the case the Philippines brought against it under UNCLOS, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, even though that would at least clarify the legal status of the nine dash lines. By the way, the case was not about sovereignty. Eh? It's just about clarifying the legal status of certain features and that nine dash lines. Uh, but China has not uh, rejected in advance the decision of the arbitral tribunal. And Chinese diplomats have on occasion even argued it is not in China's interest that China should clarify its claims. I do not think that China considers the South China Sea disputes a legal matter, although it has on occasion employed the vocabulary of international law in support of its position. But that is not the same thing as recognizing a legal dispute and it has not been consistent in doing so. As I pointed out in the last lecture, China has recently relied more on history to justify its claims. What about the military significance? Military planners must prepare for all contingencies, but I doubt that China's actions are primarily intended to gain military advantage vis-a-vis -vis the US. In, Actions in the South China Sea, I mean. 
In the event of a war with the US, the artificial islands and the military assets on them will be vaporized within minutes and will not affect the outcome in any significant way. In any case, as I argued in my last lecture, war between the US and China is highly improbable. Beijing has kept each of its actions in the South China Sea below a threshold that would compel even the most reluctant US administration to respond kinetically. The US has made clear that while its alliance with Japan covers disputed islands in the East China Sea, the same does not apply to its alliance with the Philippines and disputed territories in the South China Sea. War in support of America's principal East Asian ally, Japan, is credible, even if unlikely. But war over tiny islands, reefs and atolls would be absurd. Even in scenarios short of war, I doubt that China really considers the deployment of military assets on these artificial islands a serious deterrent to freedom of navigation operations of the kind that the US conducted last year and earlier this year. The US may become a little more cautious, it has never been reckless, but it will not stop operating in the South China Sea. Assets, military assets that are unlikely to be used are at best a weak deterrent. If, for example, the PLA, People's Liberation Army, sinks a US naval vessel or shoots down a US military aircraft, the US will certainly retaliate. This will confront the Chinese leadership with a very invidious choice. A token or ineffectual response will expose the hollowness of the Chinese Communist Party's legitimating narrative or having led the great rejuvenation of China, which will at least complicate, if not jeopardize, the Chinese Communist Party's hold on power. But if China escalates, escalate, escalation risks being forced to follow the highly jingoistic Chinese public opinion the Chinese Communist Party has cultivated down a path that Beijing does not really want to travel because it leads to the same outcome as the first choice. The Chinese leadership will strenuously avoid being placed in such a situation, I think. But China's use of history to legitimate Chinese Communist Party rule and justify sovereignty claims gets us, I think, to the crux of the matter. For the past century, the legitimacy of any Chinese government has depended on its ability to defend China's sovereignty and preserve its borders. But what are those borders? Can the Chinese Communist Party meekly accept the borders imposed on a weak China that has now, to use Mao Zedong's phrase, stood up under communist leadership? Difficult to think about that. China is not reckless, but the Chinese Communist Party must at least give an appearance of recovering lost territory. Revanchism is an interesting part of the story of China's great rejuvenation. The lands lost to a weak China include what are now parts of Siberia and the Russian Far East. They include Mongolia, Hong Kong and Macau, Taiwan, as well as the Paracels and Spratlys in the South China Sea. Siberia and the Russian Far East and Mongolia are now beyond recovery. Hong Kong and Macau reverted to Beijing's rule almost 30 years ago. 
The U.S. has made clear it will not support independence for Taiwan. Without U.S. support, independence is impossible. With that core concern assuaged, Beijing can multiply the economic traits linking Taiwan to the mainland and bide its time. Confident that irrespective of internal changes and how the people of Taiwan regard themselves, Taiwan's long-term trajectory cannot run counter to China's interests. Changing the status quo is not an immediate possibility, but is no longer an urgent issue. Although China still eyes the DPP distrustfully and will never entirely forego the option of forceful reunification. And that leaves the South China Sea territories to put some credible shreds of meat on the bare bones of the Chinese Communist Party's version of history as it navigates a second and more difficult phase of reforms and tries to manage social and labour unrest at a time of moderating growth and a future when slower growth will be China's new normal. The very insignificance of the territories in dispute in the South China Sea may well be part of the attraction to Beijing for this essentially domestic political purpose. The costs and consequences of chest thumping and acting tough in the South China Sea are minimal. Deterrence or its lack works both ways. If the Chinese cannot deter the US from operating in the South China Sea because the risks of doing so are too high to be credible, by the same token, neither can the US deter or reverse Chinese activities in the South China Sea. China is not going to dig up the artificial islands it has constructed and throw the sand back into the sea or give up what it says was Chinese territory since ancient times. Critical statements by the US, Europe or other countries from around the world calling on China to respect international law and you know recently I discovered even Botswana has issued a statement on the South China Sea. <laughs> well, all such statements can be brushed aside. On the South China Sea, the only opinion that really matters to the Chinese Communist Party is that of its own people, which is highly favorable to its actions. In the South China Sea, the Chinese Communist Party can declare victory without taking unacceptable risks. It was also no accident that the deployment of surface-to-air missiles on Woody Island in the Paracels was revealed shortly after the conclusion of the U.S.-ASEAN Sunnyland Summit last month. While the artificial islands are inconsequential in military terms, they are a potent reminder to ASEAN that China is a geographic fact, whereas the U.S. presence in the South China Sea is the consequence of a geopolitical calculation. This is an idea that China never tires of seeding in ways subtle or direct. The implications of this idea should not be exaggerated, nor can they be shrugged off as entirely invalid either. Until relatively recently, the US took a somewhat hands-off approach to disputes in the South China Sea. When China first clashed with ASEAN over mischief reef in 1995, it took some persuading to get the US to declare a position of principle. Moreover, it is, I think, a geopolitical calculation that despite all the media hullabaloo and tough talk, including by the president himself, 
engages no U.S. interest that is fundamentally irreconcilable with Chinese interests. Chinese, American and Chinese interests are not symmetrical. The South China Sea is more important to China than the U.S. If I am correct that the South China Sea issue is ultimately connected to the legitimacy of Chinese Communist Party rule, it is an existential issue for China, a core interest, although China now denies it has applied that term to the South China Sea, no doubt in order to avoid unduly exciting the natives. That's us, by the way. <laughs> the US takes no position on the merits of the various claims of sovereignty, but defines its interest in terms of upholding international law and freedom of navigation. These are important interests, but not on the same level as the basic underlying Chinese interests. Freedom of navigation and the integrity of international law are certainly not existential interests threatening the survival of the American system. I doubt there are even interests that the US must defend at all costs. China argues that he has never and will never interfere with freedom of navigation. I believe them to some extent. China's position is not without credibility insofar as it applies to maritime, the merchant marine, merchant marine traffic because China too is a trading nation. The US report is that there is a fundamental difference between freedom of navigation as a right enshrined in UNCLOS and freedom of navigation granted by the leave and favor of a major power, and that China's disregard for international law with regard to its South China Sea claims cast doubt over its commitment to uphold freedom of navigation. Well, this is true. But what the US glosses over is that it is not party to UNCLOS, and given the state of congressional politics, is not very likely to become party to UNCLOS in the foreseeable future. Instead, the U.S. says it considers UNCLOS largely customary international law and abides by it on that basis. Good. But one does not have to be an extreme skeptic to, sus to suspect that this may be an ingeniously plausible way of misdirecting attention from the possibility that the U.S. too upholds freedom of navigation by its leave and favor. As a choice the U.S. has made on the basis of a particular calculation of American national interest and not as an obligation it must honor irrespective of whether calculations of interest change. It seems to me, for example, that some of the operational activities for the proliferation security initiative that the U.S. suggested after 9-11, which included intercepting and searching vessels in the high seas, were significant derogations of freedom of navigation as generally understood, abandoned only when other countries found them too much to swallow. I do not want to press the point too far, but it does not seem unreasonable to conclude that ultimately there may be less differences between the Chinese and American positions on freedom of navigation than immediately meets the eye. Now, a country one of ASEAN countries, may have more trust in one major power than the other. But that's a matter of preference, not law. 
In strategic terms, the U.S. wants to, able, wants to be able to op operate in and through Southeast Asia and deploy its Navy from its west coast through the Pacific to the Indian Ocean and Persian Gulf and back without impediment. But who can or wants to stop it? This is again a contingency that military planners must think about for extreme scenarios, but is not particularly useful for understanding day-to-day -day international relations. In any case, to try to stop the US would be a casus belli, a cause for war, and China does not want to risk war. So what remains? What remains are differences between the US and China over what military activities, short of hostilities, can be legitimately conducted outside territorial seas in a country's exclusive economic zone, or EEZ. There are differences. But I wonder whether the current differences that we see are less the result of fundamentally opposed concepts then they are a reflection of disparities in capabilities that one day will be narrowed. China has historically been primarily a land power, but is now in the process of turning itself into a maritime power as well. The PLA Navy, or PLAN, has begun to operate in distant oceans, although still only sporadically. But of particular note for Southeast Asia were three deployments. China's deployment of a surveillance ship off the coast of Hawaii during the RIMPAC exercise in 2014. The Chinese Navy was participate in, participated in RIMPAC by invitation, but the surveillance, the surveillance ship was not part of the exercise. Second, a PLA Navy exercise the same year, 2014, in the eastern Indian Ocean between Australia's Christmas Island and Indonesia during which the Chinese Navy transited through the Sunda and Lombok Straits. And third, the transit of Chinese naval vessels through American territorial seas off Alaska in 2015. These deployments were depicted by the media as China flexing, flexing its new naval muscles, and that was probably part of China's intention. But what I think was more interesting was the Chinese Ministry of Defense's statement on the, its RIMPAC surveillance ship deployment. Let me quote that statement, I quote, beginning of quote. The People's Liberation Army naval ship's operation in waters outside the territorial seas of other countries is in line with international law and international practice, close quote. Now this could have been a statement by the spokesman of the US 7th Fleet about its operations in the South China Sea. And indeed, the commander of the U.S. Pacific Command at that time described the deployment of the surveillance ship in these terms, and I quote, an acceptance by the Chinese of what we have been saying to them for some time, which is that military operations and survey operations in another country's EEZ, where you have national, your own national security interests are within international law and are acceptable, a fundamental right that nations have. End of quote. As capabilities converge, so do concepts. As concepts converge, so may interests. At present, the basic common interest of both the US and China in the South China Sea is to minimize the risks of conflict by accident while continuing to assert what each considers their rights. 
They have begun to elaborate codes of conduct for unplanned encounters at sea and in the air and implement them. This is, of course, good news and to be welcome, but in the long run, not necessarily entirely unequivocal good news. In my last lecture, I argued that China is unlikely to be foolish enough to try and match, the U match US military capabilities in every theater of operations, but that it is probably inevitable, can't tell you when, but probably inevitable that a more equal naval equation will eventually develop in the South China Sea. When this occurs, we should not assume, given the fundamental asymmetry of US and Chinese interests in the South China Sea, that the modus vivendi they may then reach in Southeast Asia must necessarily be in ASEAN's interests. Dealing with US-China competition is difficult, but it at least leaves open the possibility of maneuver. Dealing with US-China agreement, implicit de facto agreement, if not explicit de jure agreement, may be even more uncomfortable. There will be less room to move, and when major powers strike a deal, they generally try to make lesser beings pay the price. Of course, such an, such an eventuality is still a long way off and indeed may never come to pass. But it would be prudent to look past the loud trading of accusations and counter-accusations by the two sides and the kind of analysis put out by the more excitable sort of media and academic commentator and think about what may currently seem unthinkable. And before you dismiss the possibility of US-China agreement or collusion as a paranoid fantasy, understand that stranger things have happened. At the international conference on what was then called Kampuchea, held at the UN in 1981, the US took China's side against ASEAN on whether or not the Khmer Rouge should return to power when the Vietnamese withdrew. ASEAN wanted elections, but the US supported the return of a genocidal regime. Now, did any of you imagine that the US once had, in effect, supported genocide? Any of you? I doubt it. You did. <laughs> okay. One wise man. <laughs> oh, one extreme skeptic. <laughs> the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia at that time saw the relationship with China as the paramount U.S. interest and even threatened the Singapore foreign minister at the time, Mr. S. Danabalan, that there would be, and I quote, blood on the floor if we did not change our position. Well, I hope the U.S. understands that such concerns lurk not very far beneath the surface in East Asia where memories are long. Since the Nixon shock of 1972, Japan has periodically worried about being passed by its principal ally. If China has a responsibility to, continually, to constantly reassure the small countries on its periphery, the US as an offshore balancer has a parallel responsibility and a more complex one. To the countries of Southeast Asia, the American porridge is always going to be too hot or too cold. Countries will always fear 
the Chinese, the, 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 the US entangling them in its quarrels, or fear being left to deal with other major powers without adequate support. It will be very difficult for the US to persuade us that the porridge is just right. Such are the burdens of great, that a great power must shoulder. But of late, the US has itself added to these burdens. One such occasion was when a red line, a red line was drawn with a swaggering flourish, but then faded into pink and finally disappeared in the chaos of Syria. It was immensely damaging and will not be easily forgotten, particularly since I think the episode betrayed a certain mood in the American body politic that is on display in the ongoing primary campaigns and will outlast the current administration. Modern Southeast Asian history can be understood as a quest for autonomy, in which process the formation of ASEAN was a crucial step. But so can modern Chinese history also be understood as a search to restore the autonomy lost in the 19th century and early 20th century. ASEAN and China have no choice but to live with each other. We are not enemies, but as I earlier said, relations between big and small neighbours cannot but be uneasy. Where the balance of autonomies will be eventually struck between ASEAN and China is the central issue in the relationship that will in turn determine the extent to which one that will, de that will in turn determine the extent to which the regional architecture remains open and inclusive. This is one aspect of the uncertainty and ambiguity that my first lecture argued are the most salient characteristics of the post-Cold War world. To reach and maintain an acceptable balance requires ASEAN to meet what I described in that first lecture as the basic, basic strategic challenge of our times, avoiding being forced into invidious choices and keeping open the maximum range of options. Now, meeting this, this challenge is as much an intellectual matter as it is one of politics, economics, or military capability. The late Morecambe Fraser, a former Australian Prime Minister, has written a book in which he argued that the alliance with the US had become a strategic liability for Australia. A strategic liability. It is true that across East Asia, American friends and allies face something of a dichotomy between economic calculations of interests, in which even a slower-growing China looms large, and security calculations of interests, in which the US will remain the key factor for the foreseeable future. Ladies and gentlemen, please note I use the term, the word dichotomy, not dilemma. Trade and investment are not favours China does bestows upon the region. China needs the region as much as the region needs China. And as my last lecture argued, the parameters of US-China competition are narrower and less stark than sometimes assumed. It is thus difficult, but not impossible, to balance the two sets of interests. But we cannot do so if we concede that a dilemma exists. To recognize a dilemma is to accept the very mental framework that Chinese diplomacy seeks to impose on the region and foreclose options. This was 
Malcolm Fraser's fundamental intellectual error that led to his entirely fallacious conclusion. Now, if a former leader of a staunch US ally can fall into such a mental trap, how much more difficult will it be for a disparate group of countries to avoid doing so? But we should not adopt a fatalistic attitude because that is the essential trap. To recognize error is the first step in avoiding it, and we are not without some advantages. The small countries of Southeast Asia have lived in the midst of competition by larger powers for many centuries, even before they were states in the modern sense of the term. To promiscuously and simultaneously balance, hedge, and bandwagon is embedded in our foreign policy DNA. Not only do we not see any contradiction in doing so, this is an instinctive response honed by centuries of hard experience. But this instinct is today at some risk of being dulled in at least some members of ASEAN in whom the struthiest delusions of Zofan and Sonfis seem alive and well. We must recognize that the, South, that the South China Sea is today the principal arena where complex mind games to condition mental frameworks in ASEAN members are underway. To take positions necessarily entails some risks, but to merely lie low and keep silent or only use words that are intended to be devoid of meaning on an issue as important as the South China Sea compromises autonomy surrenders options, and hence only invites greater risks. As I have earlier indicated, the most important of these mind games relate to the US presence in the South China Sea. Unfortunately, unfortunately, China understands ASEAN better than the US and knows far better how to work with ASEAN. And I use the term work as a polite way of saying manipulate our weaknesses, the proclivity to privilege form, and woolly thinking on regional security. What the US knows or has learned about ASEAN has to be largely relearned every four years. <laughs> Whatever its other virtues, and I must say they are not particularly evident so far during this election cycle, the American political system is something of a liability in Southeast Asia, where its peculiarities are not as well understood as some Americans may believe, and thus taken too seriously. In this respect, the Obama administration's use of the metaphor of pivot or rebalance to describe its approach towards the region was, in my view, inappropriate. And I have said so even before I retired to my counterparts in the State Department. A pivot swings in different directions. What rebalances one way could well move in another. The metaphor raises expectations that are almost bound to be disappointed because as the only global power, the US is always going to have responsibilities in other regions it cannot ignore. What should have been emphasized instead was the essential continuity of the US presence in East Asia over many administrations of both parties. But the political imperative of distinguishing one administration's policies from another, even when the differences are minimal, are inbuilt into the American political system and we will just have to live with it. Some commentators seem to regard a US-led 
Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, as part of an American containment strategy and in competition with the China-led Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, as presumably a Chinese breakout response to the TPP. This is Aaron Rubbish. All the East Asian members of the TPP are also in the RCEP, and some have bilateral FTAs with both China and the US. I spent a considerable part of my last lecture describing US-China interdependence and why it is as impossible for the US to contain China as it is for China to completely displace the US from East Asia. What is at stake is not whether it will be an American Southeast Asia or a Chinese Southeast Asia, but where the balance of relative influence will lie and whether the regional architecture will be relatively open or relatively exclusive. And I stress the word relative. Of course, even slight shifts in the balance of influence in the regional environment can make a major difference to small countries. The many projects planned or being implemented under the ASEAN-China 2 plus 7 cooperation framework, China's investments in infrastructure such as railroads, <coughs> under President Xi Jinping's vision of One Belt, One Road, as well as the burgeoning trade and other economic ties, are binding Southwest China and Southeast Asia into one economic space. This is certainly a development and growth opportunity that is not to be rejected. But as national boundaries become hazy, old historical patterns are being re-established in new ways, and Westphalian concepts of interstate relations may be modified. There will surely be political and strategic implications and not ju uh, just economic implications. The framework within which we calculate, we calculate our interests could narrow. And this is the geopolitical significance of the ASEAN economic community. Economic integration is an imperative not just for economic reasons, but to encourage calculations of national interests by ASEAN member states within our own frameworks rather than become overly dependent on Chinese frameworks. But economic integration is always politically difficult, and the next phase of ASEAN economic integration, which aims at establishing a common market and common production platform, will be more complicated than the first phase. The easy things have already been done. The domestic politics of ASEAN members is becoming more uncertain. Thailand and Malaysia are poised on the cups of a systemic change, at least I think so. Indonesia is yet to reach a stable post-Suharto internal equilibrium and is still an incoherent system seized with a somewhat petulant economic nationalism. There is, a, there is significant uncertainty about the policies of the new Myanmar government because it has no experience of governance. And the military apart inherits weak institutions. The Philippines will have presidential elections in a few months and is not renowned for policy continuity. <laughs> I sense biased remorse in Laos and Cambodia over the present level of integration commitments. And in Singapore, some opposition parties are trying to cast doubt over our open economic policies, particularly with regard to foreign labour. 
In any case, we should not deceive ourselves that even under ideal circumstances for integration, and our circumstances are far from ideal, ASEAN can adequately cope alone. This is particularly true in mainland Southeast Asia. To give but one example, China has built seven dams in the upper reaches of the Mekong River, which are in China, and reportedly plans 21 more. This is a permanent new geopolitical fact, analogous to artificial islands in the South China Sea, which the five, which the five ASEAN members through which the Mekong River flows cannot ignore. Recently, China announced that to relieve drought in Thailand, Laos, and Cambodia, it would, release, it would release more water from its dams on the Mekong. There's an old Chinese proverb, when drinking water, think of its source. <laughs> balance at sea must be matched by balance on land. The US Lower Mekong Initiative is a useful political symbol of commitment but substantively paltry by comparison to what China has put on the table and symbols only take you so far. What Japan has initiated for infrastructure development in Southeast Asia is far more substantive and significant. But unlike balance at sea, to reach balance on land will take more than the efforts of one or two countries. I believe there is a need for a broader and more coordinated effort for infrastructure development projects in mainland Southeast Asia. One possibility is public-private partnerships by multinational consortiums of companies from the US, Japan, Australia, the ROK, and India. This would considerably broaden the range of options for mainland Southeast Asia, prevent the entrenchment of a fatalistic mindset, and serve as a crucial complement to the maritime capability building programs some of these countries have started for ASEAN. Now, Chinese participation in such consortiums is not to be ruled out. As China's growth moderates, there will be many demands on state coffers, and the scale and ambition of what China has planned cannot be undertaken by China alone, as Beijing itself realizes. This was the rationale for the AIIB, the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank. And it was a strategic mistake for the US and Japan to have stayed out of the AIIB. Fortunately, it is not an, an irreversible mistake. Collaboration with China by US and its allies in the AIIB for infrastructure development is desirable to take the starkest zero-sum edges of strategic competition in Southeast Asia and perhaps expose false dilemmas as just that false. Ladies and gentlemen, I could go on elaborating on the complexities of Southeast Asia which have no easy or obvious solutions, but I think I have depressed you enough for this evening. <laughs> My next lecture on the myth of universality will deal with one prevalent but false mental framework and the resulting wounds countries inflict on themselves and others always, of course, with the noblest of intentions, but which I hope Singapore can avoid. Thank you for listening to me. Good evening, sir. I have a question to ask, right? Can you uh, identify yourself, please? My name is Kevin Yao-Chi-Ken. Uh, 
I'm a Singapore national. Yes. Uh, the question that I want to ask right here is that in the case of your prevailing narrative, it presupposes that uh, there's continuity in uh, US foreign policy. What happens if the, what do you call it, the GOP and the DNO has a situation whereby the presidential nominees, right, the presidential candidates are either Bernie or Trump, and they are in favor of a rebalancing, a rebalancing away from Asia or in, from the Far East. What happens in that scenario? Because it's quite possible that Trump and, and or Bernie might be the uh, potential candidate for the future, and that also is possible that Secretary Clinton... Okay, I got you. I got you. <laughs> um, it's a good question, and a very contemporary question. There has been, in East Asia at least, a very basic continuity in US policy for all the time I have been in the foreign ministry, which is right now including this new appointment, 35 years or so, and beyond that. But Trump and, and Bernie Saunders, as I alluded to in this lecture, in, are tapping on the same undercurrent in the American body politic, which is basically uh, anti-globalization, a sense of insecurity with its engagement in the world, which has, you know, which makes them unsure of their future. And I think you must have read the the. Uh, I think you must have read the New York interv Times interview that uh, Trump gave, where he said that he is America first. He will make. The, he didn't quite say that, he said he's not isolationist, but he is going to make a far more transactional uh, approach towards the rest of the world. And he specifically mentioned Korea and Japan. <laughs> well, if that comes to pass, I don't know, man, where can I immigrate to? Wait, wait, it's, it's a... Uh, Trump could well be, could well get enough delegates to be the Republican Party's nominee. But I think the Republican establishment knows that by nominating, you know, it's in a fix, it's a, a terrible dilemma, right? <laughs> you could have a broker convention, but then you will have a grassroots rebellion. <laughs> if you have a, a normal convention, you have to endorse him. And then I think Saunders will fizzle out. The, I think Saunders will fizzle out. That is not the concern. So it will be uh, Hillary against Trump, if, if that happens. Um, I would like to say that then Hillary will be a net shot. <laughs> uh, and I think the balance of probability is that she will win. And if she wins, then the, the basic continuity which I have described will continue. But you know, so many strange things that happened during this election season <laughs> that I, 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 I'm hesitant to be very confident. Because Hillary is a member of the establishment and she, can she tap into that mood <laughs> that both Saunders and Trump are tapping? And if the mainstream Republicans don't vote for Trump and vote for Hillary, will this undercurrent swell in favor of Trump? I have no idea. 
but it's not pretty. So that's a long answer to your short question, which is I bloody don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Next question. Okay, hi. Uh, good evening, Ambassador. I'm Lawson. I'm studying international relations at UOL. It's a distance uh, UOL, uh, University UOL? of London. Oh, so it's okay. a distance learning program. So oh. I'm here to learn more and to ask you questions. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you get one. So I've, oh, okay. <laughs> I've actually shot one, very short ones, okay. three short ones. Don't okay. be modest. <laughs> three short ones equals one long, uh, one long question. Okay, yeah, yeah. ask quickly. Okay. Uh, understand from the Hague Center for Strategic Studies that there are four great powers, the US, EU, Russia and China. So during your address, you mentioned about the role of China, the role of US regarding with relations to small states. What about Russia and the EU, and especially Russia, they are always looking out for a warm water port. Would Russia actually take the advantage of looking of a, for a partner in Asia and have a warm water port, say, I don't know, somewhere in okay. Asia? Okay. Okay. Wait, which, is the second, center, which is the center that made this? Uh, uh, this is the Hague Center for Hague. Strategic ah, okay. Studies. Wonder. Yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, then there's a comment and a question. It's um, from my studies, I understand that a lot of the threats that China faced in the 19th and 20th century originated from the seas. And um, US was part of the Eight Nation Alliance in the 1900s that actually uh, uh, kind of uh, invaded China and had yeah, a, after the boxer. a boxer rebellion. So could this memory in China's mind still be very fresh and they feel that if we don't okay. capitalize on the sea, we'll lose out? Uh, and the third one, this is re uh, regarding to ASEAN, uh, regarding humanitarian issues. I understand the R2P doctrine sometimes equals to the right to intervene, and this is on humanitarian ground. So there's one issue that I've noted, is the issue of the Rohingya refugees. Rohingya, okay. And apparently the... Rakhine State has over a million of these people and most of these people are not recognized as citizens got it, got and therefore they got do it. not have legal protection. So what does ASEAN stand on this? Okay, yeah. I will answer them in the... You know, only a centre in Europe will consider Europe, uh, EU a great power. <laughs> the EU has an important economic role in this region but even there, I suspect it is not so much the EU as EU, but Germany, France, the UK, Netherlands, and so on. Russia is on a trajectory that will make itself junior partner to China, if it goes on this trajectory. The Soviet Union had a role in this region because of the Soviet Pacific fleet. No Pacific fleet, no role. So I don't think, uh, Russia is a member of all these forums, APEC, ES, it'll play that kind of role. It cannot be ignored because it is a permanent member of the Security Council, but it's not a player in this region. The player are China and Japan first, US allies in the second tier, like Japan, you know, ROK, Australia, maybe India occasionally. Those are the players, the big power players. Second question, uh, yeah, China, why do you think China is trying to turn itself into a maritime power? And your last question on the Rohingyas. Responsibility to protect is one of those concepts that sounds very good, <laughs> but 
does not really work very well in practice. He has only been deployed against very weak and insignificant countries. Uh, the Rohingyas are a big issue, an issue that ASEAN does not want to take any responsibility for because there is no solution. Sometimes you have to grow calluses on your heart, to quote Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, or you will bleed to death. <laughs> so don't expect people doing anything about the Rohingyas. One thing you should learn about international relations, huh? just because uh, a problem exists doesn't mean that there will be a solution. Thank you. I think we have many uh, more questions. Uh, this side there. Uh, this side first. Huh? No, no, this oh. guy up there before the two of them. Okay. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, my name is Marcus. Uh, you spoke about how domestic public opinion holds strong influence on in foreign policy. And we're seeing an increasingly vocal electorate across ASEAN, especially in Singapore. Yeah. Now, you mentioned in your previous lectures, you know, politicizing foreign policies might stifle one's ability to be nimble. So my question is in two parts. The first part is on behalf of misinformed intelligentsia, or in your own words, uh, stupid people. <laughs> now you cited Malcolm Fraser's fallacy. What is the biggest fallacy you have heard among the public intelligentsia in Singapore? And how can we better manage the politicizing of foreign affairs in Singapore? That's the first question, the first part. The second part is for the pro proletariat. The, the, the people, right, the electorate. Now, what is your recommended approach to explaining foreign policy in general so that even the man on the street understands and readies behind the government's position in foreign affairs? The biggest, I come for the last lecture because I'll deal with this in, uh, in detail in the last lecture I intended to. And since I don't want to have to think again about what I'm going to say in the last lecture, I'll give you the very, very brief point. Okay? Okay, the answer to your first question is the idea that Singapore is not vulnerable. Which is perpetuated in various ways. Yeah. Uh, secondly, the idea, the second, the, the issue is not that there should not be political debates about foreign policy. The issue is that political debates about foreign policy should take place within broad, generally accepted parameters by everybody. Because there are, some, there are parameters for every country, and the parameters are narrow for smaller countries. Uh, and the denial of that, which is represented by saying that we are not vulnerable, and it's come out here and there you know, quite, quite often. Uh, is, I think, the biggest and stupidest uh, foreign policy, biggest idea with foreign policy implications that we put forward. As to your second question, wait for my last lecture. <laughs> because if I answer it now, I will have to think again, and I am just too lazy to do so. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, good evening, Ambassador. Uh, my name is PJ, I'm Singaporean. I, my question actually pertains to your comment about the geographical fact of China that ASEAN has to live with. Yeah. And there is also the geographical fact that uh, you know, on the other side of ASEAN is the Indian Ocean with India. So could you comment briefly about like, India's interests uh, and perspectives on like, the okay. South China Sea dispute? That's, that's my question, actually. Yeah. India has occasionally sent some naval ships for exercises in the South China Sea. 
Uh, and India has made some statements on the South China Sea. Uh, and India is the other power, big power, that is contiguous to Southeast Asia. But the fact is that the strategic energy of a huge, complicated country like India is always going to be more inwardly directed than outwardly directed. And in India's case, insofar as it's outwardly directed, it is directed westwards towards Pakistan, Afghanistan, that direction. <laughs> so, India, we would like India to play a role. Uh, Singapore in particular played, I think fair to say, Chingon, the leading role in bringing India back into ASEAN circles after the estrangement when it took the opposite side in the 1980s. But the, the reality of a big country being inward-looking, a complicated, it's far more complicated, China is a complicated country, India is a far more complicated country. So any Indian government is always going to prioritize looking inwards first. It, it no, no choice. It plays an occasional role, but that's about it. It is not yet a major player, whether it's South China Sea or in the other parts. It is potentially a major player on land, as I alluded to towards the end, if it can help in infrastructure development in conjunction with others. It has a plan to build a road from the eastern part of India, uh, eastwards across Myanmar. Uh, and it's a good plan. That would make a very big strategic difference. Problem is, I've been hearing this plan for almost as long as I've been in the foreign ministry. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Amanda. I'm a JC2 student from Dunman High School and I'm going to ask you a question, something that's related to the H2 syllabus in the, in the A-levels. So, you have to explain yeah, what's the H2 um, syllabus. <laughs> so, um, you were making a reference, right, that in the post-Cold War context that Indonesia actually paid lip service to the, to the ASEAN way well, and instead in chose the to... end game of Cambodia. Yeah, yeah, in the Cambodian crisis and chose to engage with, with, with the relevant parties bilaterally, right? But the thing was, um, in history, so I'd like to reconcile these two views, not so much as for exams, but also because I wanted What's to merge with the knowledge that I know. What's the other? Oh, my view and this view. Yeah, and, and the thing about the thing is we study in the textbooks, right, that it's ultimately ASEAN disunity that undermines the effectiveness of dealing with the Cambodian crisis until to the point where um, Vietnam actually rejected the eight points proposal and any meetings with preconditions set by Thailand and Singapore. So it was portrayed that, oh, you know, because um, ASEAN was unable to resolve these problems because of the hardline stance by Singapore and Thailand, therefore they needed the bilateral method by Jakarta to actually kind of, got yeah. Now, which textbook is this? <laughs> um, I'm I'll not. i you later. <laughs> no. It is a gross oversimplification. Uh, uh, and I have never read a good book about the Cambodian issue. Several of us in this room devoted one decade of our life to it in various aspects. And I have really never read any book that does just. So it's not true. Huh? <laughs> what? So, no, so no, it's, it's true and it's not true simultaneously. Oh. Ah. If you don't write this in an exam, are you sure? <laughs> No, let me explain, let me explain to you. Let me explain to you. First of all, first of all, it was never ever in ASEAN's power to resolve the Cambodian crisis. The Cambodian crisis was essentially a Sino-Soviet proxy fight. And these are big powers. ASEAN's role 
and ASEAN held together quite well until the end, actually, was to prevent the world, the rest of the world, accepting a fait accompli that Vietnam had invaded Cambodia, this is it. End of story. To that end, we fought diplomatic battles for 10 years. The proposal you put forward was meant to be rejected by Vietnam. So it makes Vietnam look bad. So we can go to the UN and tell them, look, we put down eight-point proposal of these buggers. Huh? <laughs> they rejected it. This is diplomacy, you know, my dear. <laughs> and there were many such things throughout these 10 years. Now, at the end of it, a, a solution became possible only towards the end of the 1980s when Mr. Gorbachev came to power in the, what was then called the Soviet Union. And Mr. Gorbachev decided that he had to retrench some of the overextensions of the Soviet Union in order to concentrate on internal reform. Now, he cocked up the internal reform, but that's another matter. <laughs> uh -huh. So, he decides to settle. The Chinese and the Soviets settle. Then, the other permanent members of the Security Council got into the act. ASEAN had very little role in the settlement. That is the harsh fact. Of course, they were all like to us. And Indonesia likes bustling around. There were several, a series, there were two huge, there were two meetings called the Jakarta informal meetings, which were completely futile. And then between the meetings, there were working groups. You know when I knew there was a settlement? When the Chinese official at one of these informal meetings which I got so fed up, it was held in Hotel Indonesia in, in uh, Jakarta. And I knew these things are all futile. This is a big power game. The end game is a big power game. Maintaining, preventing a fake part accomplished is an ASEAN game. Because ASEAN as small countries can lobby much more effectively in the UN in the non-aligned movement than big countries. But once it got to the end, I knew this was a total waste of time. I got fed up, I left, I went to the bar, I was having a beer. <laughs> Then my Chinese counterpart, who happened to be the first Chinese ambassador to Singapore after we came to see me, said, don't worry, we have settled with the Vietnamese. <laughs> I said, okay, good, tell me what's the settlement. And he gave me a few things. Now that, no, no, all your textbooks, you see, your textbooks, I can't blame them. La. <laughs> because they only go by documents that ASEAN has put out. Framer face, see, those half of them, three quarters of them, were just tactical moves and not meant to be believed, not meant to be accepted. <laughs> in fact, uh, if the Vietnamese were cleverer, they would have accepted the eight points and then we would be in a bloody fix. <laughs> <laughs> so, understand that what is on the surface of international relations is not necessarily the most important thing. But, um, but you wouldn't reject the argument that ultimately the Cambodian crisis did give ASEAN a lot of legitimacy on the oh, world yeah, yeah. platform. Because we, because we did what we could do, we did very well, which is to jam the Vietnamese at every corner when they're trying to break out of diplomatic isolation. We even pose a diplomat at toilet doors, no? To make sure that, it, <laughs> to make sure that even if he has to go to the toilet, he comes out in time to vote, vote for the right way. That means against Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> One of my jobs was to be at one of the toilets in the UN. <laughs> this one is... But don't write this all, huh? I, 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 have, I have some sentimental regard for, what is it, Daniel Junior College, is it? 
Um, Dunman High. Secondary school. Secondary school, no, no. My sister went to the other one. It's a still don't write it in your exam because you're sure fail. Your teacher won't understand for a start. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Next lady. Sorry. Good evening, Investor. My name is Nabila from National Junior College. Um, prior apologies for any ignorance in my question. So, um, you no, talked... No, no, I wasn't scolding her. No, no, I know, I know. teacher, <laughs> Um, you talked about difficulties in integration in ASEAN, right? Yeah. But considering um, how far we've gone in terms of being able to churn out FTAs and stuff like that, do you think that we should, or we could, or should aspire towards an EU-centric um, economic model? Um, EU-centric economic model, referring to like the ideal situation okay, okay, where yeah. we are all we're considering all the countries. The essential difference between ASEAN and the EU is this: ASEAN is an interstate organization, as I mentioned. The EU deludes itself, it can overcome nationalism, and is a post-nationalist construct. A supranational organization. Now, it doesn't work. Or it works only up to extent. You look what's happening in the EU now. That is all the denouement of the internal contradictions of the EU idea. So we are not going to go down that way. Now, we talk about community. This is a rather deceptive term. Because community actually does imply supranationality. But we don't mean it. It's not on the agenda. The only bit of the, any ASEAN community that can be called supranational is the dispute settlement mechanism in the ASEAN economic community. But that has never been tested. And I will bet you anything will never be tested. <laughs> we, we prefer to go to WTO because then we don't have to quarrel directly with each other. If some third party will tell us what to do. <laughs> As I said, if we start having quarrel with each other, God knows where you will end. So I categorically reject, and I'm glad to say that all other ASEAN countries has never been in our mind to be like the EU. And now what's happening to the EU convinces us of our grave wisdom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, Puyush. Yeah, the man in uh, court must yeah. have the last word. Yeah, correct, oh, yeah, time, man. Don't make around, man. So, <laughs> so I want to just build on that same this thing. You know, you made some references which I agreed to entirely. By the way, the uh, visceral differences within the countries of ASEAN, the uh, some sense of increasing nationalism in Indonesia, this whole idea of post-nationalistic world, which I agreed doesn't work. So, how far do you think the uh, a concept, forget community, how far do you think, from an economic standpoint, the countries of ASEAN could get together? So trade barriers, you know, we made progress. But services, capital, I don't see labor mobility happening in my lifetime. How far do you think we could actually get? What is realistic? Well, that's a good question. And the short answer is nobody knows. Until you try. <laughs> until you try, right? The goals are set out. I'm sure you have read this thing, uh, ASEAN 2025, right? Essentially, for the economic community, we have to deal with, for the next stage, huh? To have a common market and a common production platform, we will have to deal with A, non-tariff barriers and services and some, to some degree labor. Huh? The labor is going to be very difficult because everybody will move here and then what the, where the hell we're going to stay, right? <laughs> uh, so it's going to be very difficult. And as I mentioned, that the key issues are the key, the key success or failure factor are going to be domestic politics of member states. Uh, and, and right now, it doesn't look good. 
However, uh, I have never been accused of being overly optimistic, and I am not. <laughs> Uh, however, it is however true that throughout the 49 years of ASEAN, we have surprised ourselves from time to time. <laughs> huh? So we can, what we can do, and this is how ASEAN can only work. You set a goal. Right? You can all agree on this goal. You, go, you try to keep it in sight. Sometimes you can't move. Sometimes you will move sideways. Sometimes you may even move backwards a bit. But you keep the goal and you don't give it up. And then somehow, sometimes, things change. Look, ASEAN, in its original conception, was a Cold War organization. It was implicit in what I said. Right? Five non-communist countries deciding that we better hang together because you know, we'll hang separately no matter how much we hate each other. There's war here, you know, all right? But a Cold War organization has a small problem when a Cold War ends. What the hell do you do, right? And of course, what you do is what you said you do, you have you do economic integration. And there were a lot of agreements signed during the 1990s. Very little of them was implemented. What is it? Huh? Something like 30% or less. There was some ASEAN uh, secretary study. You should know why you all did, you did it. Huh? <laughs> no, after you tell him. Huh? So anyway, we did. But we nearly fell apart when the Asian economic crisis uh, it, yeah. But sometimes a near-death experience focuses the mind, you know. <laughs> After that, and because of the rise of China and in a different way, India, uh, we better get our act together because we are fated to live in between these two giants. Now, that salutary shock carried us to more or less until 2008-2009. Alright? Then, a new factor, that which I've been talking about, huh? Now, we have put a goal, it doesn't look good, at least from my point of view, but we shouldn't give up, because something may happen. It is my, it is my cardinal principle of diplomatic activity, when you don't know what to do, when everything is confused around you and you are stuck, do something, anything, because it then changes the situation, and then you might find new possibilities. <laughs> Anyway, you will not be worse off. <laughs> so, so Piyush, the next turning point will be when Donald Trump becomes the president of the United States. That's right. You will have such a shock. Huh? <laughs> you see? Any other... Ah. Yes, Mr. Am Mr. Ambassador. Um, my question is, what do you see Who is... Are you? you are from Singapore? I, I'm, I'm Mary and I'm a Singaporean born in Malaysia. Okay. Good enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> what is the role of uh, what do you see is the role of Australian ASEAN policies and economics, and particularly in the uh, China US influence? Thank you. In the China US, uh, in the China US equation, China is a adjunct to the US. I mean, Australia is an adjunct to the US. Huh? One, of, one Australian Prime Minister once said. In fact, not really. So it does not really have much of an independent role, I think. But Australia, in other areas, has a major role to play and is playing a major role in ASEAN. In economics, in you know, capacity building in the less developed ASEAN countries, uh, in a whole host of things. I think Australia is one of 
one of ASEAN's most important partners in this region. Uh, there are some dialogue partners that we made them dialogue partners, you know, 200 years ago when it seemed a good idea and now we are stuck with them. But Australia is permanently part of the region, will get closer to the region and is one of the most important dialogue partners. In fact, some of our ASEAN colleagues like to multiply dialogue partners. But what we should be trying to do is think how to deepen relationship with countries like Australia that are substantive dialogue partners. Well, uh, there's a couple more. Yeah. Hi, I'm Chi Wai, a Singaporean. Um, okay, uh, in your talk today, you're, you're speaking of uh, China's uh, influence in vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, uh, ASEAN. Uh, Singapore, among ASEAN countries, uh, stand out in its uh, racial composition as a majority Chinese uh, country. What, in your opinion, do you see as the advantages and disadvantages of Singapore in this context of dealing with China? For instance, would it uh, be China's portal towards dealing with ASEAN? If so, is it working to our advantage or disadvantage? Uh, it has both advantages and disadvantages, and I'll be brief because this again is something I was going to deal with in the last lecture. The advantage is obvious. Some, many Singaporeans speak some version of Chinese. According to the Chinese, <laughs> right? Uh, and it, I guess it helps, uh, you know, it, it doesn't hurt. Uh, huh? uh, the disadvantage is that, I think I've spoken about this in other forums before, China keeps talking to, uh, keeps referring to us as a Chinese country. And we keep telling them we are not a Chinese country. Yes, the Chinese population, the majority of the population may be of Chinese origin, but this is not a Chinese country. They can't understand or don't want to understand. And that's a liability because when they say you are a Chinese country, uh, they don't mean it as a flattery, you know. They mean it that as because you are Chinese, you should know your position in life better than the others and help us explain to the other ASEAN countries where their is. And of course we cannot do that. That's the short answer. Come back for the last lecture. And then uh, just uh, to remind ourselves, when the late Lee Kuan Yew uh, conducted his uh, relationship with the Chinese leader, he has never used the Chinese language, although he perfectly understood what it's all about. Including yeah. our present Prime Minister. Yeah, so he all, all speak in English. Yeah. Okay, I think we should let you go. Uh, Bilari, you yeah, spoke for you. quite long already. Then I the, need a beer, man. The bartender all waiting for you. Yeah. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is my easiest job as a moderator. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, 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 I volunteer for subsequent uh, session uh, uh, and uh, thank you all for being such a good audience and uh, hopefully you uh, take away uh, some of the very important messages that uh, Bilahari has uh, delivered through his uh, brilliant lecture. Thank you very much.